Isaiah 6. Isaiah's vision of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of, un of, of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And Isaiah's commission from the Lord. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go, and say to this Say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Thank you, Ilya. When I preach, I choose people at random <laughs> to ask. If they say no, I just say, well, I think it's God's word and you should just do it. So you guys should thank Ilya and others uh, when you see them reading up here. That's, um, I'm very grateful for them. I pray for us this morning that you would open our eyes, that your spirit would come and uh, teach us your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, Ilya read for us Isaiah 6, uh, 1 through 8. And if you were here two weeks ago, I preached on the first seven verses uh, that was read, and then today is kind of part two of that, and we'll be basically capping it or concluding it on verse eight. So if you weren't here, I'm going to go through all the points of the last one, and if you were here, it was two weeks ago, and I know how, I mean, I would forget my own points if I didn't write them down, so um, we just need maybe to jog our memory. So the first one we saw is that God is uniquely holy. In verses one through four, it says that um, Isaiah sees God on this throne and the train of his robe is filled the temple. There are these seraphs that can't even look at God and they see his holiness. And that word uniquely, we saw that um, God is holy not just in that he is pure and sinless because the angels are that same way, but God is even above and beyond that. He is unique. There is no one in heaven, in hell, on earth, or in the entire universe that is like him at all. He alone is the one who has created us. He alone is the one who sustains all of life. And uh, the, the phrase there is the whole earth is full of his glory. And so I kind of mentioned a few just different parts of God's creation that magnify him. So we saw that he is uniquely holy. In verse 5, Isaiah says, Woe to me! I'm ruined from a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh Almighty. And so we saw that God's holiness acts like a spiritual mirror. 
and we see ourselves and it highlights our sinfulness. We see that God is holy at his core and that we, in our imperfection, in our fallen state, fall short of that glory. And so his holiness highlights our sinfulness. There's a shortcoming. There's a, there's a big difference between God and us, a chasm that we cannot cross ourselves. And, and this ruins Isaiah. I mean, he says, I'm ruined or I'm destroyed. I'm, I'm reduced to nothing. And uh, we talked about how God's holy at his core and we're sinful at ours. And so if the two of us are going to have any sort of relationship, one of those two things has to change. Either God has to become less holy or we have to become, we, one of our cores has to change. Our core has to change. And that's what we saw in point three, that God graciously atones for our sin. The seraph comes to him with a coal, and we talked about that being symbolic of Christ and his work in making us a new creation. And so Isaiah's sin is atoned for, and I contrasted that with um, two caricatures or misconceptions of God. One, where God maximizes sin, and he's just mean and vengeful and angry, and he should have killed Isaiah on the spot without a second thought. And then the other misconception of God, uh, which, I, which I think is we're more prone to uh, as a church and in our region, is that God would minimize sin and that he would say, it's not that big a deal. Let's just move on. Let's forget about it. Nobody's perfect. I love you anyway. And the danger in those two misconceptions is that both contain an element of truth. See, he's just and holy and he won't tolerate sin, but he is merciful and gracious and loving But God does something far better than those two. In the passage, he atones for our sin. He actually deals with it. He doesn't pretend it doesn't exist, and he doesn't focus solely on it and maximize it. He forgives Isaiah's sin and actually changes who he is. So the the terms in the New Testament for this, uh, some of the ways it describes the atonement of our sin, it talks about us being given a new heart or being born again. Uh, It talks about us being a new creation. And so we saw in these three things, God's uniquely holy. His holiness highlights our sinfulness. And those two things, he's holy at his core, we're sinful at ours, and that God changes Isaiah. And so now, at this point, everyone in the room, in the heavenly throne room in Isaiah 6, is holy. Uh, God has invited Isaiah into his holiness, um, in a sense, in that he is now pure. And then, you realize at this point, um, until verse 8, um, God has done nothing. And that's not like an accusation, like, you've done nothing. But like, he's literally done nothing. He's literally just sat there. And Isaiah, all of this happens with Isaiah just looking at him, just seeing him for who he really is. Like, without God having said anything, without God having done anything, that's just what happens. And then in the passage, God speaks for the first time. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? So this question, who's going to go, who am I going to send, this is not God um, trying to recruit Isaiah. This is not God going, like kind of hoping that someone's going to respond. One commentator says it this way. The question, who will go, does not mean that God did not know or only that he hoped somebody would respond. He asked the question to give Isaiah, now cleansed, an opportunity for service. The question is asked for Isaiah's benefit. It's asked to give Isaiah a chance to respond to what's happened to him. And so all of verse 8, this whole sermon is going to be basically us responding to those first three points. What, 
what comes as a result of us having seen God as uniquely holy, having realized our own sinfulness, and having God dealt with that sin. And God's question here provides that avenue for service. And what's great about that is think about this. God does not need us. God did not need Isaiah to do what he was just about to send Isaiah to do. He does not need you and me to reach Philida. He could do that some other way. He doesn't need us. In Acts, it's very clear he's not served by human hands. It's not like he gets hungry and we make food for him. It, that's not how it works. But God in his grace is pleased to use us. He doesn't need us, but he's pleased to use us. And so Isaiah says, here am I, send me. The grace of God has changed Isaiah's words. The first thing Isaiah says in verse five is, woe to me. And after having experienced the grace of God, the first thing he says is, here am I. The woe to me by the grace of God has been changed to here am I. Now, I was just, this is so funny to me. He says yes before he knows what he's saying yes to. Um, if you read on in the passage, he's given a pretty hard set of soil to till. He, he is given a hard job to do. But he says yes before he knows that. Now, later on, he's going to ask, how long, O oh Lord? But before he does, before he does, he already says yes. So try an experiment. Sometime later today with the, uh, someone who either um, wasn't here or isn't listening to me right now, um, ask him this question. Ask him, hey, will you do me a quick favor? I can almost guarantee you, unless they're being a booger and trying to prove me wrong, I can almost guarantee you they will not immediately say yes. They will almost surely say what, right? They'll almost for sure say, what do you want me to do? I tried this experiment on Olivia. She, her not knowing that it was going to be a sermon illustration. <laughs> I told her after the fact, but I said, hey, hey, babe, will you do me a favor? And she asked, what is it? I said, well, just say yes, and I'll tell you what it is. <laughs> My wife is far smarter than that. She goes, no, <laughs> you tell me, Right? Well, that's how it works. If anyone has asked you to do a favor, almost every time you're going to say, what is it? And then you decide based on their response, yes, no, or maybe, right? That does not happen with Isaiah, okay? God, in effect, says, will you do me a favor? Not that God needs us, but just go with it. Will you do me a favor? And Isaiah says, yes, whatever it is. Here am I, send me. Before he knows where he's going, before he knows what he's doing, he just says, yes, when we've experienced the grace of God in our lives, the kindness of God, the love of God in our life, we have no other response than to lay ourselves before him and say, whatever you want, wherever you send me, I'll go. Whatever, whatever, yes, here am I, send me. This is the purpose, this is the reason for which God showed himself to Isaiah. God showed himself to Isaiah so that Isaiah would then show God to others. God showed himself to Isaiah so that Isaiah would show himself to others. And again, why God chose, chose to do it this way as opposed to just doing it himself, I don't know. He, God didn't need Isaiah. He doesn't need us. But God, for some reason, chose to show himself to Isaiah so that Isaiah would go and tell others about himself. Isaiah is now commissioned by God to go. We are the same today. We have received God's grace. If we call ourselves Christians, if we claim the name of Christ, if you're here this morning and you've been saved by Jesus, you have received his grace and part of the reason you've received it is that you would distribute it. 
you've received the love of God, that you would extend the love of God to others. We receive God's grace to extend God's grace. We exist for the spread of the gospel for the glory of God's name. What I want to be careful of, any sermon on mission or evangelism, um, you kind of walk this fine line in motivating people out of guilt because it's something we all know we should be doing, but we're not doing as much as we know we should, right? Uh, But what I really want to do is we would motivate ourselves out of a, a, a gospel gratitude of what God has done for us. Part of who, this is not just something we ought to do. This is something, this is part of who we are. Part of the new heart that God has given you is a heart of loyalty and service to him. And even if it's been kind of buried by uh, distraction and materialism or um, some other thing, lukewarmness to Christ, if you were to repent and peel those things back, you'll find that your heart beats for him and his purposes. I don't know if any of you have experienced, if you've been walking with the Lord for a while, if you've experienced kind of a, uh, a coldness or a kind of a same old, same old feeling, like it kind of feels stale and rote. Um, part of that is just the ebb and flow of spiritual life. Part of that's normal. But I can't help but think maybe part of it is because we're not living into the fullness of who God has made us to be. Part of what God has, um, part of how God has made us is that we would be extenders, that we would be um, distributors of his grace. We exist for the spread of the gospel, for the glory of God's name, here and abroad. And when we don't do that, it's not just that we're um, sinning, but that we, we become spiritually sick, in a sense. Uh, I was hearing John Piper um, preach on this, um, because I like to... <laughs> cheat when I make my sermons and listen to other guys. Um, But he's preaching on this, and he said this really good line, is that our hearts have shrunk to the size of our own concerns, that we think in our own little world, and it's, I mean, I'm so guilty of this, so this is not just me laying it on you. I mean, it's so easy, isn't it, just to think about our church, or your school, or your business, or your family, and you, I mean, I mean, the Bible is super clear. We need to be witnesses there and be thinking in that. But God has given us a much bigger vision, a much, he's got a larger purpose for us than just that. It includes that, but it's more than it. So we exist for the glorious purpose of spreading the gospel for the glory of God's name among the nations. Nothing less is going to fully satisfy who God has made us to be. So that leads us to the fourth point here. We have an urgent mission. So on your handouts there, I gave you the first three points if you need a reminder. The fourth one is we have an urgent mission. What I want you to notice, again, in this whole idea of trying not to motivate out of guilt but gospel gratitude, look at the first three points. Uh, They are intentionally, the subject is God and what he's done. The subject and verb is based around who God is or what God has done. God is uniquely holy. God's holiness highlights our sinfulness. He graciously atones for our sin. Only in response to who God is and what he's done do we get to what we are supposed to be doing. Okay? If we do it the other way around, we're going to get into a weird works mentality and it's going to get funky and weird and your relationship with God will feel strange. But if you focus on who God is and what he's done, then, then we move to the what we're supposed to do. Who God is, what he's done, Now we're moving to who we are and what we're supposed to be doing in response to that. This idea of God choosing people to extend his grace to other people 
it just seems to be one of the ways God operates. It wasn't just that one time with Isaiah. One of the foundational verses in the Old Testament is Genesis 12. It's what's called the Abrahamic Covenant. And this is when God's basically creating the nation of Israel. And one of the foundational promises, the very first thing God says when he's kind of revealing his plan for these people, he says, um, all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. I mean, God could have done it some other way, but he chooses, for his own reasons, to bless the nations of the world specifically through Abraham. Now, ultimately, that's fulfilled in Christ, but what I want you to see is God's choosing one person and then eventually one family and nation to be a blessing to everyone else. Jesus picks up on the same motive, which would make sense because he's God and so, you know. But he picks up on the same motive. In Matthew 28, another really famous text is called the Great Commission where Jesus says, um, go, he tells his disciples, this is right before he ascends into heaven, he says, go and make disciples of all nations. And one of the things that's interesting about that is that's not an addendum to Jesus' ministry. It's not just like he had done all this ministry and then that was kind of the final, kind of like an, oh yeah, don't forget, um, that was actually, I think, the heartbeat of what he was doing with those guys from the very beginning. So that Great Commission is at the end of the book of Matthew, but at the beginning of the book of Matthew, in chapter 4, verse 19, the first words he said to some of those disciples were, come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. From beginning to end of Jesus' earthly ministry with these guys, the, one of the whole reasons he did it was that they would therefore would then go and make disciples of others. He invites these 11 guys, 12, 11 guys, 12, then 11 guys into relationship with himself so that they would then go and bring others into relationship with Jesus. And this is just one of the ways that God seems to work. And so in Acts 1.8, he gives kind of a paradigm for how to respond and how this making disciples thing should work. He says that you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, okay? So that's kind of the paradigm I want us to think through our response. When we're thinking through, we have an urgent mission, let's think through that paradigm. And I'm going to just briefly go over each one of them, and then we're going to zero in and specifically look at one of them, okay? So the first one, he says Jerusalem, okay? So think like that's your local, immediate people that you wouldn't need to go out of your way to reach, okay? So unbelieving family members or friends, co-workers, classmates, I mean, just people in your normal day-to-day life who don't know the Lord. Week in, week out, you interact with these people. That's kind of like your, your Jerusalem, okay? Uh, Judea would be kind of a little bit wider than that. So um, that would be kind of like maybe the city of Vancouver or Clark County, just our region. And so you might need to take some initiative to involve yourself to get in the way of unbelievers, not get in the way, but uh, engage unbelievers. So that might look like, you know, helping out at the zone or the Good News Club that our church does or helping out with some other ministry in the area. That would be kind of your Judea. Samaria, I think, even a little bit larger than that. So, I mean, you can tell these circles are starting to expand like ripples in a pond. And Samaria would be even larger than that. So start thinking the entire Northwest or even the entire United States I mean, this is, we should be involved in some way by prayer, finances, or, you know, actual tangible physical involvement in what God's doing in this area, 
okay? So maybe mission trips um, around the area or maybe it means taking some time off work to do VBS or to do something in that region. The last one he gives is the ends of the earth. Um, basically saying there's a circle that encompasses everybody. Um, your immediate influence, a little bit larger than that, your kind of region, your area, your country, the place we dwell, but then everywhere. The circle that encompasses all of it. And so what I want to zero in on is this ends of the earth idea. And specifically, I want to talk about what's, what's referred to in missions as unreached people groups. So unreached is different than lost, okay? So a lost person or lost people have gospel witness in their life, but don't believe in Jesus, okay? So if you have unbelieving family members or friends, that would be a lost person. That's how the Bible might describe them, as a lost person. They all have a gospel witness. And if you ask me, how do you know that they do? The answer is because you're in their life. You're their gospel witness. Um, So I think I could pretty safely say the entire United States and most of North America falls into this category of, of lost, um, people who don't believe in Jesus but have access. If they wanted to, they could. They could know about him. Unreached means they have no gospel witness in their life at all. They have no understanding. There's, there may or may not be a Bible in their language, but a Bible is probably not available to them. They don't have a church in their area, so if they were kind of feeling like, I want to learn more about God, they wouldn't have a gospel witness church. They don't have any believers in their life. If they heard the name of Jesus, it would probably be the first time in their life. Um, world population is a little over 7 billion right now. I think estimates put unreached people around two, two and a half billion um, people. So that's a lot. Um, it's hard for us to conceptualize because we've grown up and we live in an area where there, I mean, even though this is the great unchurched Northwest, there's still a lot of churches, right? There's still a lot of opportunity for us. Um, but there are people, a lot of people, who've never heard and have no opportunity. And so let's zero in on specifically one region of the world. So I'm going to get specific, but I don't want to get myopic. So I'm going to start talking specifics, but try to keep in mind big picture, okay? So I want to talk about South Asia. South Asia is the densest population of unreached people groups in the world. Spiritually speaking, this is the darkest place on the planet. About 1.6 billion people live there, and it's about half the square miles of what's in the United States, so a lot of people and a small amount of space. And out of the 1.6 billion, it's estimated that 1.5 billion of them have never heard the name of Jesus at all and have no gospel witness in their life. Um, this is huge. So this, these countries include, um, as you can, you can see them up on the screen, uh, Pakistan, Nepal, Bhutan, Bangladesh, India, Sri Lanka, and the Maldives. There's about 1,720 unreached people groups there. The two languages they speak are Hindi and Bengali. The largest urban areas, these numbers are just staggering to me because I think Portland, the Portland metro area is like, I think, 2 million or so, Okay. New, or not New Delhi, Delhi, 24.9 million people. I mean, this is just huge. Um, Costco could have a heyday there. <laughs> Karachi is 22.1 million. Mumbai, 17.7 million. Dhaka is 15.7 million. I mean, 
millions and millions of people. Five major religions in these countries. Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism, Sikhism, Jainism. Uh, I had Richard, I asked him to just scroll through some photos of just faces of people who live in South Asia. This entire region of the world, there's less than 1% gospel witness anywhere. Okay, So that would mean most people, 99.9% of them, will be born, live, and die without ever having heard the name of Jesus Christ, without having any idea that their sins can be forgiven, that there is a God who's holy, and that they can receive forgiveness from him. So, um, missions, and especially, especially missions to unreached peoples, is not uh, super popular. So let me just mention two objections that um, might be coming up in your head, or um, and people, if you were to like try to do something about this, people might object with. Uh, number one, it is uh, arrogant, closed-minded, ethnocentric to go and try to westernize this area of the world and try to make them like us and try to tell them their God is not true and our God is. That seems mean. Um, it's definitely not tolerant uh, in the sense that our world uses the term today. Um, that objection would hold true if Jesus was not correct when he said in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If, if he was not, if he was lying when he said that, then the objection would hold. But if Jesus really is the only way, if we really do believe what the Bible says about the exclusivity of Christ, which I know is super unpopular today, and it's kind of sometimes a hard pill for me to swallow too, I will admit, um, but if, it, if that is really true, then the most unloving thing we could do would be to withhold salvation from people. And when we do missions wisely, it doesn't mean making their culture like our culture. Christianity does not have to be Western. In fact, it didn't start as Western. It started in the Middle East with a brown dude, okay? <laughs> like, it does not have, I mean, they don't have to sing the same songs that we sing. They don't have to have a hymnal like we have a hymnal. Like, they don't have to even preach in the same style that we preach. It doesn't have to be that. Um, we do it wisely. We can separate Christianity from cultural, like, you know, whatever you call that, transformation. Um, but you would, need, you would still need Christianity. In addition, that objection uh, is at best inconsistent and at worst hypocritical. Because think about this. You're the objector and you're saying, okay, that view of God is closed-minded and arrogant and you shouldn't, you shouldn't go and try to do that um, and tell other people that their God is not true. Okay, what you're saying is that, therefore, my view of God, either that there is no God or that God's kind of a mountain and all paths lead to him and it's fine, you're saying that view of God is superior to the Christian view of God and therefore we should act out of this paradigm. So you're doing the very thing that you're telling us not to do. You see, so it's inconsistent because someone might not realize that or it's hypocritical at worst if they do realize it. The second objection is that um, this is going to cost a lot. It's going to cost a lot of money. Uh, it's going to cost a lot from us. If we're going to do it, it's going to cost a lot of personal sacrifice. Uh, it might cost our safety or our health. I mean, if, if you were here last week, we were doing day of prayer for the persecuted church, right? And some of those countries are the countries where people are persecuted. All the easy ones are taken, 
the only unreached peoples that are left are either hostile to the gospel, they're hard to access, like you have to hike days to get there or something, or they're really expensive to get to. They might be all three. And so, yeah, it is going to cost a lot. Um, but Jesus didn't say go and make disciples of the easy nations. I mean, Jesus, he said go and make disciples of all nations, all, which would include the hard ones. So we don't have a choice to back out on that. In addition, if, we, if it is costing us a lot, um, oh, that God would give us the mindset of Paul that we consider all things a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Everything you have is going to burn anyway, okay? It's, it's not going to last beyond your death. And so if we were to give it to the mission of God, it's not like we're losing something. We're not sacrificing anything. Eternally speaking, we're gaining so that we would have that same mindset of Paul. And even if you're physically hurt, the mission still doesn't stop. Almost every time in the Bible, I think every time in the Bible, that there's a believer who's trying to proclaim the name of Jesus and they are imprisoned or tortured or killed, and it happens a lot, um, the gospel never stops. It always just seems to that only acts as an accelerant, it seems like. It's like putting gas on the fire as opposed to trying to snuff it out, which is what the persecutors are trying to do. Paul says in Philippians, he's in jail, and, uh, and he's in jail, and there's these some goobers trying to um, make things worse for him in jail by preaching the gospel, which is like, okay. Um, but then there's some people who genuinely want the gospel to be preached, and so they're preaching it. And so he says in Philippians, okay, some people are preaching it from bad motives, some people from good. I don't care, the gospel going forward. And so I'll have, and this is my paraphrase, but I will happily endure these chains that the gospel could go forward. So yeah, it might cost us. It will cost us. I shouldn't say it might, it will. Um, But the gain, I mean, the gain is there. And if we had more time to look on uh, some of the eternal rewards that are there, some of the things that God tells us, it would just be awesome. But let me just say, it would be a sacrifice, but it's there. So, My prayer in preparing this sermon is that God would move us as a church to be engaged in unreached people groups. And there's a number of different ways we could do that. But I prayed specifically that God would actually raise someone up to literally sell everything and go. And I'm I'm put myself in that same category that we would all be willing and that God would move someone in this room to go. And if you're there and you're already putting a mental block up thinking, um, I don't know how to run a Bible study. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a Bible teacher. Um, let me just stop you right there and just say, uh, those are good questions, but it's not a reason to not go. Almost anything you're doing here can be done on the mission field. Okay, if you want ways to think about how that could look, Melissa White is like, she, she's a missionary. She like works for a missions organization. She could tell you all the sorts of different ways your, your uh, skills can be used. But let me just mention a few. India's economy right now is exploding. Okay? It's one of the fastest growing economies on the planet. It's like with or above China's economy. Okay? So if you're a business person and you're good at marketing or demographics or finances, I mean, you could go to India, and the cool part about this is you wouldn't even need to be financially supported by our church or others. You could be a self-supported missionary, self-supported in the financial sense, in the same way that Paul was. You could actually go and get a job in a business doing businessy stuff that you know how to do already, and you could be a gospel witness to people there. If you're medically trained, CNAs, RNs, you know, all the other things. <laughs> Even first aid or CPR certified. I mean, these, the urban, the dense urban areas, I mean, they've got a lot of medical um, technology and accessibility. So, you know, if you're in that field, you can go for it. But even if you're not, the mountainous regions, 
a lot of times don't have almost any medical access. So even if you have basic training, it might be better than what they have available to them. So you can actually be the, the tangible physical hands and feet of Jesus, like preventing disease or dealing with symptoms and showing the love of God in a very tangible way. If you work in technology or IT, that business is booming. I mean, there's got to be infrastructure for that. And so networking, internet, email, all that kind of stuff, you could play a part in their economy and at the same time being a gospel witness. Uh, if you're a teacher, I mean, teaching English is a huge need internationally. There's a program called TESOL, Teaching English to Speakers of Other Languages. If you, were to, if you were to really try hard at it, you can maybe in a year or two get your certification. And here's the cool thing about it. You don't even need to know the other language. Okay? You could be TESOL certified, and that could open doors in Pakistan or India or one of these other countries that pastor would not open. Right? If, you, if on the visa it says Christian missionary, a lot of these, some of these countries would not allow that. But you write teacher of English, or um, we, we had these missionaries from La Grande go to China and to an unreached people group, and they um, were tree farmers, which, oh, exciting, right? But, um, sorry, if you're a tree farmer, that, that would just be hard for me. Anyway, <laughs> but they got creative, and so they go, and they, they're still there today trying to reach the Nosu people by farming trees, and that's their, that's their venue into it. So I just want you, what I'm trying to do is help you just think there's a lot of ways you could go. Um, so don't think if I'm praying and asking God to send someone up that you've got to be seminary and all that stuff. Um, I mean, God will provide what you need if you're going to be the one to go. So we cannot stand by and do nothing. 1.5 billion just in this region, another billion or so, um, never having heard the name of Jesus. I have a youth pastor friend who was at a conference a few weeks ago and he wrote something in his journal that was really convicting for him and then for me as well. And it said, if we're not fishers of men, can we call ourselves followers of Christ? If we've really experienced the goodness of God, and again, I'm trying to motivate out of gospel gratitude, if we've really got that, uh, we cannot stand by and do nothing. Now I realize most of us aren't going to sell everything and go. I hope somebody does. But I realize most of us are still going to have our normal day-to-day lives. I, that's reality. I get that. So we are still, though, responsible to do something. And so on the back of your sheet, um, there is what I tried to have be really practical suggestions for how you and just your normal day-to-day life can be engaged in what God's doing around the world, with un- specifically with unreached people groups, okay? And remember, I'm, I'm getting real specific here on ends of the earth, but the response could be any one of those spheres. It's not either or, it's kind of everything. But real specific, if you want to be engaged in what God's doing with unreached people groups, uh, first two, I, put, I said they were required. So uh, the first one is pray. When I was working at camp, I would do... Um, church visits, and I got into the section on, you know, how to be involved with camp, and I I used to say the least you could do is pray. Anybody could pray, Um, but that statement is just not true. I think the most you could do is pray. The most we can do is pray, so we've got, if we're going to start anywhere, that's where we've got to start. We've got to start by praying, 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 and so I've got three specific suggestions for you. Number one, pray for a fresh sense of the gospel in your life, okay? 
You don't join the missions force. You don't even get involved in missions because God needs your help, because you feel guilty, because, you know, all this stuff. You get involved because of what the gospel has done for you. And so if, if you're here this morning and you don't know God, if you're not following him, um, start there. Start there with just a fresh sense of the gospel in your life. If you've been following Christ for a long time and you're just kind of feeling like it's same old, same old, pray for, that God would warm your heart to the story of grace in your life. That you would um, pray that you would see how far, how much you've been forgiven. That verse, uh, there's a verse where Jesus says, he who's been forgiven much, loves much. That we would see how far we had fallen, the depth of our sin. Ask God, show me the depth of my depravity. That could be kind of a bummer of an answer to prayer if he does that. But then you would see, if you see the depth of your depravity, you would see the greatness of his grace. Pray for that, that God would give you a fresh sense of the gospel in your life. Number two, pray for unreached people groups. Specific prayer request for unreached people groups. In Luke 10, Jesus says, the, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest and uh, that he would send workers into the field. Um, I heard a, the missionary, the guy who's in charge of mobilization for World Venture, preach on that passage. And I don't know Greek, but he said the, um, the word for pray there is, is like grovel, beg, like, like just desperate prayer that God would send people. And being willing that, that we might be the answer to that. But either way, whether we're the answer to that or not, that God would send. And so specifically, if you're like, okay, I want to pray, but... I mean, that's huge. Two billion people, how, who, what do I pray for? Like, I don't, I don't know where to start. Two really practical things. The Joshua Project. This is a Christian missionary organization that basically tries to track gospel witness around the world. And so they've got every country, every people group in every country categorized as reached, somewhat reached, nominal Christianity, or significantly reached is kind of, I think, their categories. And they have, they have an app. So if you have a smartphone, iPhone, Android, whatever, they have an app that you can get, and it's just unreached people group of the day. It's very simple. Um, so I don't do it every day. I tr- I'm trying to do it more, um, but I just tap on it, and it brings up a different group every day, and it tells you where they live, their main occupation, their literacy rate. It tells you if they have a Bible or not in their language. Uh, it tells you all sorts of stuff, a little bit about their history, and then it has specific prayer requests. Um, and so then you can pray in a really informed way for that group. If you're not an app person, they do the email thing too. So if you want to sign up for emails. Um, but if you prefer kind of like a paper thing, the next one is Operation World. They put out a book, I think it's annually or biannually, every, um, well, if it's biannually, it's every other year. But they put out a prayer guide. that says the definitive prayer guide to every nation. So they have every single country and they've got specific prayer requests. Um, they've got the progress of um, Christian witness in that country. They have ways to pray, obstacles to the gospel, how many missionaries are there, all, that, all the stats and you know, nitty-gritty details that you need to pray. So Joshua Project, Operation World, and third thing is um, our, one of our interns, Brianna Gadare, if you've noticed, she'll get up here every once in a while and uh, share an unreached people group. She'll share details about them. All that same kind of stuff. Where they are, how many of them, you know, um, what they mainly um, believe, all that kind of stuff. So let me just say a word about corporate prayer. <laughs> I know how this goes, and I'm so guilty of it, but I know 
Um, when I say, let's all pray, and I bow my head, I know, and I'm one of these two, that some of us uh, start thinking about things other than praying. Okay, I'm just being straight up. I know, okay. Um, some of us think about food. Some of us think about our jobs. So, I mean, you name it. It's just pretty much anything except praying, right? And I know I, I do this too. So what I'm trying to do, and maybe um, you could try this too, is when Brianna gets up here and she starts talking about an unreached people group, like get, get engaged, listen. And then when she's going to pray, like, um, if sitting there and listening is a way that you can actually engage, do it. But if you need to pray yourself, like in your head, you can just, I'm giving permission for her that you can ignore what she's saying and you can say your own prayers in your head for that people group, okay? Or, <laughs> this is gonna be weird, but if, you, um, if you're like really agreeing with what she's saying and you need to like, like pray and this is how you can engage, you can whisper like, yes, yes, or something like that, or amen, Lord. The person next to you might be like, okay, um, <laughs> But if that, I mean, the point is get engaged. When we pray as a church for an unreached people group, let's like really pray uh, for them. Remember that grovel, beg, desperate prayer for unreached people groups. Okay, Uh, third thing to pray. This is what I'm calling the blank check prayer. So for people my generation and younger, a check was a piece of paper (laughs) that our parents used to write down money and they would promise it to people, okay? You all know what a check is, but when, when you would give a check, a blank check is basically saying you ask whatever you want and it's yours, okay? And so my, my term there, blank check prayer, is that we would lay ourselves before God and it would be a blank check and we would say anything you want, it's yours. Here am I, send me. If you want me to stay in Vancouver and be a witness to people here, and, and pray and give money, uh, then I'll do that. But if you want me to move to Bangladesh, I'll do that. If you want me to move to Indiana, I'll do that. I mean, wherever, wherever you want me to go, Lord, I'll go. I remember uh, when I was getting ready to finish college, um, I felt like my heart was for the first time really in that spot where I could genuinely and honestly say, anywhere, Lord, and so my wife and I were praying that. And it's the end of college, so it's a natural transition period. You're kind of figuring out where I'm going to go, what I'm going to do kind of stuff. And so I'm praying that in the back of my mind. I'm thinking like exotic South America or whatever. Uh, and this opportunity in Eastern Oregon comes up. <laughs> Seriously, Lord, anywhere. Anywhere. <laughs> right? But that prayer is honestly, I believe, what took me to um, Camp Elkanah. If you don't know, that's where I was for the last four years was working over there for a camp. And that prayer is what brought me back here. And that may be what sends me or you to Pakistan or to the Maldives or to somewhere else. Wherever you want me to go, God, I will go. Remember, it's that here am I, send me. He says yes before the task is assigned. I pray that we would lay ourselves out before the Lord and say whatever you want. And it may be here, it may be somewhere else. And we would be willing to do that. All right. Give sacrificially to missionaries. This is the second required one. Give financially to specifically unreached people groups, okay? This is not a solicitation for more giving to the church, although you can give through the church to unreached and missions stuff. We have it in our budget to do that. Operation Christmas Child goes to some of these restricted access places, And so be involved in what our church is doing and consider giving financially to that. 
but maybe you're already giving um, enough to the church. Maybe your above and beyond means going specifically to a missions organization or sponsoring Bibles to restricted nations. If you want specifics on uh, organizations and projects and stuff, chat with me. There's just too many to put them all on here. didn't want to bog us down with details. But the point is, give financially. Where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Um, so when we give financially to God's work around the world, part of what we're doing is we're, remember that our heart is shrinking to our concerns. We're trying to expand our heart to beat with God's, in sync with his, for the nations. And so give, give, give financially to missions around the world. About $450 million each year is given uh, annually to unreached people groups. Now, to me, that sounds like a lot, and to you, that might sound like a lot as well, until you realize that's only 3% of what's given to missions annually. So 97% of what we give to missions goes to missionaries in already reached areas. Now, I'm not saying that's bad because they need training, they need more evangelization, there's still work to be done there. I'm not saying we pull out. I'm just saying it feels a little unbalanced. And 450 million does sound like a lot, but but you realize we Americans spend more than $450 million on Halloween costumes for our pets every year than we spend on unreached people groups. Where our money is, there our heart will be also, okay? If you want to buy Halloween costumes for your pet, that's fine, but you need to match or exceed, okay, (laughs) what you're giving to unreached people groups. Only one out of every hundred missionaries or so goes to an unreached people group. I mean, the vast majority of our missionary effort is going to already reached areas, which is not in and of itself bad because it might be those reached areas that can send an effective missionary to an unreached area. Um, But we need to, I mean, we really need to think about where the priorities are there. So give sacrificially. The last thing, um, I put three different suggestions there. These are ways to pursue a global mindset to try to get our hearts in sync with God's Um, the first is read a missionary biography. Read about people who, like Isaiah, said, here am I, send me. Read about guys like Hudson Taylor, um, Jim Elliott, um, Adoniram Johnson. If you don't know any of those names, Google all of them, okay? These guys, these guys are insane. Um, Gladys Award. I mean, she was this, one of the first missionaries to China. She's awesome. Hudson Taylor, founded China Inland Mission. This guy was insane. He was one of the first missionaries to, um, this goes into that whole cultural transformation bit, he was one of the first missionaries to stop wearing business suits and everything as a missionary. He adopted Chinese garb, he cut his hair into a ponytail to as much as he could try to fit in and engage with the Chinese. And he got a lot of, uh, that's not a sermon word, he got a lot of um, pushback um, (laughs) for that. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> anyway. But that guy was insane. I mean, you read some of the stuff he did. He would like get up at 4 a.m. and pray for two hours. And you're just like, oh my gosh, am I even saved listening to like what this guy did? Um, he, I mean, he did Bible, trans- he was one of the first men to uh, translate the Bible into Chinese. He was, um, he trained himself medically. When he had to come back to England for some, his own health issues, um, he spent the time trying to equip himself to have more tools when he got back to China. He was, get this, he's a dude, okay, but he trained himself to become a midwife, okay, awkward, but so that when he went back into China, he could help them give birth to healthy babies, and he saw that as an inroad for the gospel, 
Um, a great book, if you want to read a missionary biography, is called um, God's Smuggler by Brother Andrew. Um, this, it, it's an incredible book. It's this guy who um, would smuggle Bibles into restricted access countries in Eastern Europe. And some of the stories, I mean, you would not put it down. It is better than any fiction you've read. I, I can guarantee it. It's really good. So read missionary biographies. Read what these, these men and women of God have done throughout the world and how God used them. It's super encouraging. And you can just... I mean, it, get, it helps you to pray for missionaries and it helps you to think more mission-minded in your own life. Read a missionary biography, okay? Uh, next, there's a huge conference in the Northwest called Mission Connection, okay? It's coming up in January. It's on the 20th and 21st. It's a Friday night, all day Saturday. That might be too much of a commitment for you, so do this. Go part of the day on Saturday and just go to one of the general sessions and one of the workshops. You'd be in and out in like two hours, Okay? Give, give to that, uh, give some of your time to that and think, and try to start thinking globally and just seeing what God's doing around the world. Uh, the third thing, connect with missionaries when they come through. When our church has um, somebody come up and share what God's doing, so next month I think we have Doug Valenzuela from Italy coming and he's gonna share a bit. When he comes, ask him questions. Don't let him just present and, and head out. Like, take him out to lunch. Invite him to your house. Ask, what are the obstacles in Italy? If you're from the Italy team, bring someone who wasn't and like chat with Doug and try to help them kind of just catch that missionary bug from him. Just how did you become a missionary? What's the obstacle there? What are the challenges? Have you ever wished you did something different? Um, Ask those kinds of questions. Um, We've got um, missionaries in the Philippines and Thailand. We've got them all over. When they come through, like listen to what God's doing. And especially... um, People like me who have young kids, I mean, have those missionaries in your home for a meal. I know, I know having people over with kids can sometimes be a bit of a hassle, but that's a huge discipleship part, and you're kind of instilling in your, heart, your kids' hearts that global mindset. It's a discipling thing for your kids to have the missionary hanging out at your house. So connect with missionaries. So the bottom line is this. God has been so gracious to us all of us in this room have had the good news of Jesus shared with us. Even if you don't believe it, you've had it shared with you here this morning um, that we as believers would give ourselves in our prayers, in our money, in actually going, if that's what God calls us to do, that we would give ourselves unreservedly, without hesitation, without limitation, that we would lay ourselves before him and say, whatever you want, I'm yours. Whatever you want to do that our hearts would beat for God's purposes. That, that's my prayer and my goal for this sermon and for us as a church, okay? Let me pray for us and then um, we'll move on. Oh God, I thank you for what you've done in my life. I thank you that there uh, were people praying for me. I, pray, I thank you that uh, my friend Jordan reached out to me in love with the gospel and God, I, uh, I confess that too many times my heart has shrunk to the size of my concerns, that I've, I've been limited in, in uh, my scope of, of what you're wanting me to do. Help me, help us as a church to have a grand vision for the world. God, that we would, our hearts would beat in sync with yours. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.